Well, Bob is 50 years old. And he's an exceptionally healthy 50-year-old. He's never smoked. He never drank excessively. He's always taken good care of his body. In fact, he runs two miles every morning. He eats healthy, and his preferred drink is a tall glass of water. Convinced by his wife that he needs to go in for the physical and the dreaded screening that is recommended to every male at 50 years old, he schedules the appointment and he has the procedure. The doctor comes back with the results. He said, Bob, unfortunately, I have some bad news. Bob laughs. Ha! You're kidding. Doc, I've never felt better. Look at me. I am a fit 50. The doctor hands him the results of the test. He says, Bob, you have colon cancer. A healthy appearance can be misleading, can it? So you can appear healthy on the outside, look good, but on the inside, carry a terminal disease. This is the spiritual condition of the religious hypocrite. The scribes and the Pharisees were adherers of the law. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they carried a terminal disease, the disease of sin. Jesus condemns them for this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, an appearance of righteousness, but within lawlessness. Jesus just told us in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, your righteousness needs to go beyond outer appearances. It needs to have an effect on your heart and transform your heart. It needs to be a righteousness from the inside out. See, it's easy for us, all of us, to point the finger at the scribes and the Pharisees and to condemn them and say, well, yeah, they were bad religious hypocrites, but you and I have the same temptations, the same sin problems, don't we? We on the outside could come on a Sunday morning and look pretty good. We have our lives together. We're walking in with our spouses, walking in with our children, with smiles on in our Sunday best. But on the inside, we deal with the same sins. We have anger. We have lust. We have covetousness. We have hate in our hearts. Jesus, like a, like a master diagnostician, is going to open up your insides and show you the disease that we all carry. It's the disease of sin. And it starts in our hearts. It starts on the inside. This is the law of Christ. True obedience from the heart. Now, five times in this whole section, Jesus gives us this formula. He says, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. See, Jesus is the law fulfiller. 
He brings that old covenant law to completion, as we saw last week. Through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension, the superior priesthood. Galatians 3.24 calls the Old Testament law a guardian that leads us to Christ, who fulfills it. But now, Jesus, not only the law fulfiller, but the law enforcer, brings his new covenant law to bear on his disciples. And you'll notice that this law, the law of Christ, it doesn't contradict Old Testament law. Rather, it emphasizes the spirit of the law, the moral principle behind it, which is faith that produces obedience, not just on the outside, but from the inside, from the heart. The scribes and the Pharisees, they prided themselves in walking according to the letter of the law, but they abandoned the heart of it. And we're tempted to do the same thing every day. Jesus corrects this bad interpretation. He said it's not just about what you do and don't do. It's a matter of what you think, what you desire. It's a matter of your heart. And so allow Jesus, the good doctor, to open up our hearts this morning and expose the ugliness, the disease, and the sin that is within all of us. And the question for you and I is what are we going to do when that's exposed? When Jesus points it out, says, listen, you have cancer. You have cancer in your heart. It's called sin. What will you do? Will you continue to deny it, suppress it, mask it, push it under the rug? I don't want to deal with that. Or will you repent of it? Turn from that sin, admit that you're guilty, turn from it, and walk in obedience by faith from the heart, following Jesus Christ. So let's get into the first subject matter here, and it's the subject matter of anger. Here's point number one in your outline. It says, if you're angry, plead guilty. If you're angry, plead guilty. Jesus says in Matthew 5.21, look down at your Bibles, read it, see it for yourself. It says this, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now Jesus quotes the sixth commandment here. You're familiar with it. You shall not murder. It's listed in Exodus chapter 20. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 5. And what was the punishment for murder? What was the judgment? Well, the judgment for murder was death. Exodus 21.12 says that whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Life for life. The death penalty. Capital punishment for murder. God said before that in Genesis 9 verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God is made, or sorry, for God made man in his own image. See, murder is wrong. That is a generally accepted truth across all societies, cultures, tribes, languages, and tongues. Murder is wrong. And we know it's wrong because we are made in the image of God. When we decide to take a life, it is an egregious sin before God because God gave that person, that image bearer, life. And we are taking their life in our hands and taking it from them. It's a high crime, a crime 
of, of the highest severity, and it receives the highest severity of punishment. Even in society today, as far as I know, only murder of the first degree may result in capital punishment. Life for life. Now, like us, in the Bible times, they had a judicial system. Even under the Old Covenant, there was due process for the manslayer or the murderer. In Deuteronomy 16, God gives the people of Israel these instructions. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. In Numbers 35, God designates even cities of refuge that somebody who is accused of murder could run to for their due process. They would run to the city of refuge, and the avenger who required their blood, who said that this person killed someone, they would follow them there, and then they would go to court together, essentially. They would go to this court. It was made up of Levites who, provi- who presided over these regions, and they would decide the fate of the manslayer. And they would decide the fate on, based on the testimony of two or more witnesses. Now, if it was proven to be involuntary manslaughter, an accident, then the murderer, the murderer was punished less severely, just like in our society. Murder of the second degree, third degree. And he was provided refuge from his avenger as long as he stayed in that city. But if it was premeditated, if it was intentional, the murderer was executed. He was avenged. Life for life. This was in the Old Testament times. In the New Testament times, this manslayer would stand before the Sanhedrin. This was the Jewish council. Oh, and these guys were very eager to execute punishment for manslayers, for those who commit any crime. They took their job very seriously, maybe a little bit too eager to administer punishment. Surely, just like us, they looked upon murderers with disgust and disdain. Oh, those are the highest criminals in, criminals in society. How could you take someone's life? Murder is wrong. Murderers must be tried, convicted, and punished to the full extent under the law. And you and I both have this moral justice system installed in our hearts, don't we? We all know murder is wrong. And so in our hearts, we cry out for justice against the murderer. You've seen trial after trial, the murderer sitting there in the courtroom, hands cuffed behind his back, maybe in the orange garb, and you think to yourself, man, that's a criminal. That's a really bad person. They murdered somebody. What Jesus says next then might shock you, and it certainly shocked those in the audience that he was speaking to on this, or in this sermon. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus puts the angry person and the murderer side by side. He puts both of them under the gavel, declares them both guilty, and both to be punished to the full extent of the law. 
If you've been angry, if you've murdered, same sin root. Liable, subject to judgment. Wow. You are, if you've been angry, you're guilty of the same sin at the root of the highest crime in society. Guilty before God. Let that sink in. And let me ask a simple question. Have you been angry? Are you angry this morning? There's a progression here in this passage. You see it. There's anger, whoever is angry. And then there's whoever insults. And then there's whoever says, you fool. Anger is the root. That's the root of the problem. People express anger differently. Some of us are like volcanoes. We erupt with rage, you know, easily provoked and just lash out in anger. Others of us are like a simmering pot. On the outside appear cool and collective, but you look on the inside and they are boiling, right? So anger is expressed differently. But regardless of how your anger is expressed, whether it's passive aggression or bitterness or holding a grudge or strife or sinful shouting or hitting or name-calling or division or fighting or abusing or even murder, all of those expressions of anger grow on the same tree and you'll find at their root the same sin, anger. Anger. Anger, put simply, is a passionate desire to harm or get rid of the other person, the object of your anger. It's a desire, whether it's short, brief, just a spurt of passion, or it's a long, simmering, boiling anger. The desire is the same to inflict harm on the other person or to get rid of them. It's the root the root of all these egregious sins. Jesus says, if you're angry, you're guilty. You're guilty. Subject to judgment. He continues in verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. They are to subject themselves to the same council that oversees the judgment of murderers. If they are insulting their brother, Jesus actually says a, a unique term here. He says, if you say to someone, raka, raka is that word there. Raka means empty-headed. Or maybe we would say knucklehead. Okay, raka, this is name-calling. So this insult here is name-calling. Jesus says, if you are guilty of name-calling, then you're guilty of, again, the same sin root of the murderer. And then he continues in verse 22, he says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Fool, moros, is where we get the English word moron. But it goes beyond calling somebody empty-headed, dumb, or you know, uh, lacking sensibility. The word fool, especially in Jewish culture, was to condemn someone as godless, to call them a pagan, an enemy of God. It was to curse someone to the highest degree, to call them a fool. Because you can read throughout the Old Testament, the fool's path is the one to destruction, 
You read in the Psalms, Proverbs, and so on. But the righteous one is the path to life. So if you're called a fool, then you're cursing someone to death. It's a big crime. Jesus justifiably only uses that word fool a couple of times. And he always uses that word to describe someone displaying the fruit of unbelief. Like These are people who are explaining the fruit of unbelief, primarily the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. But he says here, of us, if you use this kind of unjustified, angry, insulting, and defaming language, you are subject to Gehenna, hell of fire. Gehenna. Gehenna. It's another word for hell. Described with this valley outside the walls of Jerusalem where trash was dumped and it was lit on fire to get rid of. An ugly, bad place. An illustration of what hell is like. The hell of fire. Gehenna. Wow. Serious punishment for what you and I might say, does the crime really suit? To call somebody a fool? To just be angry even if it's for a moment? We're, we're subject to the same judgment, the same counsel, the hell of fire? Jesus says, yes, you're guilty. You're guilty before the court. What kind of court is Jesus talking about here? That's important. Who are you guilty in front of? Because certainly, an officer isn't going to come to your house if you called your neighbor a fool. He's not going to put you away for that. What kind of court is Jesus referring to here? Notice, he says, you will be liable to the hell of fire. You'll be liable to Gehenna. Who has the authority to send you or I to hell? There's only one. It's God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So what kind of judicial system does Jesus have in mind? This is the heavenly court that you and I stand guilty before. When you and I are angry, we stand guilty and condemned before God. Consider the gravity of this situation. Anger is exposed for what it really is. Murder of the heart. Insults and defamation are exposed for what they really are. Murders of the mouth. Jesus says, if you're angry, then you stand guilty before a holy judge who doesn't have just the external evidence laid out in front of him. He doesn't need a jury. He doesn't need witnesses. He sees it all. He's righteous. And he sees not only your actions, not only your words, but the motives. Those thoughts that you had that led to those words and those actions. Those are laid out before him clear as day like an open scroll. And you and I stand guilty before holy God. If you're angry. If you've been angry. Which I think every single person in this room would confess that we've all been angry at some point. Therefore, we all stand guilty. You carry the disease. And Jesus shows you and I that. The diagnosis, the prognosis, they're both ugly. And then you think about this. The reality of what Jesus is saying there. And then you think, 
Who in my life bears the brunt of my anger? Is it not those closest to us? Is it not those whom we love the most? Oh, guilty. We need to see our anger the way God sees it, as a serious offense to him and liable to judgment. We need to plead guilty, knowing that the just punishment for our crime is death. Unless, listen, unless your sin is atoned for. This is so important. This is where the gospel, God's grace, God's mercy, hits our utter depravity and our sinfulness. This is where the good news of the gospel meets our need and it heals us of our disease. Jesus, the Son of God, became the propitiation for our sins. This is what that means. Even though He was innocent, He took the punishment for our crime upon Himself. He paid the price in full, which was the wrath of God poured out on Him instead of us. He took the hell of fire that you and I deserve. Consider this. You plead guilty. Jesus Christ suffers the punishment. Amazing. The gavel comes down, you stand in court, and you are declared innocent while they take Jesus away for punishment. He takes the punishment for you and I's crime. It's amazing that we would have an advocate like that, a mediator like that, one who loves us enough to do something like that. Jesus Christ, the God-man. Incredible. And so, you and I, we've been angry, we plead guilty, but we don't have to suffer the eternal punishment for it if we believe in Jesus Christ. If our faith is in the Son of God who took that guilt and punishment on our behalf. Do you believe in Him today? Is your trust in Him? If it's not, you still stand guilty before a holy judge with no advocate, nobody to stand between you and him. Trust in Christ today. Believe in Jesus as the only solution to your great problem, the disease of your heart. What do we do? What do we do when we're confronted with this ugly disease, when we see it for what it really is? First of all, confess your sin. Plead guilty. Admit that you're wrong. So much, so much of what we do today it goes all the way back to the sin of Adam. We try to blame shift. We try to make sin look less severe. Oh, it's not that bad. I was just angry for a moment. I just kind of lashed out. I lost control. Or, man, my anger got the best of me. And you act like a victim to sin when you really committed the sin. Plead guilty. We've all sinned. And we need to admit that, confess that. Confession means essentially to agree with God about your state before Him. We've all sinned. And when you confess your sin, when you admit your guilt before God and others, then you turn in repentance and you trust in Christ alone to save you from it. By faith, you know that only He can deliver you from your blood guilt. This is what 
uh, the David prayed in the Psalms, in Psalm 51. He cries out to God after he coordinated the murder of this man. He cries out to God. He says, God, deliver me from my blood guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation. There's only one, one who can forgive you, who can declare you clean, who can justify you. And guess who it is? It's the very judge that you stand before. And he's only going to declare you clean. He's only going to justify you if your faith is in his son, the sacrifice, the propitiation that he provided to save you from that sin. Trust in Christ. When you're angry, I encourage you to immediately pray this prayer. Psalm 51.14 Whether you lash out at the kids, you're angry with your spouse, you're holding on to resentment toward that coworker, that neighbor, stop, catch yourself, pray this prayer. Deliver me, God, from my blood guiltiness. Oh God, oh God of my salvation. When you confess your sin and you trust in Christ alone by faith to deliver you from it, you repent, you turn around, and you receive the grace that is only offered in the gospel. And as a result, you walk in obedience and with a desire to make all wrongs right, which should produce the second part of this instruction. Point number two, if you've offended, reconcile quickly. If you've offended, reconcile quickly. So you make things right before God, and then you're walking in obedience from the heart, but part of that obedience is making things right with the people you've offended by your anger. See, Jesus doesn't just leave you and I at the stand guilty. Okay, I'm guilty. I plead guilty. I've sinned. But he gives you some instruction on how to make things right with those you've offended. Look at verse 23. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is describing a scene uh, at the temple, giving offerings, a gift. It was an act of worship in New Testament times. Jesus says, if you're there, and you remember that your brother has something against you, notice, not something you have against another, but even further than that, something someone has against you. In other words, you remember that you've offended someone, whether it was an intentional offense or maybe it was an unintentional offense, but you know they're mad at you. She mad. He mad. I need to make things right. Based on the context, there's an obvious angry tension between you two. Then he says, it's better for you to drop the gift, leave the temple, and go make the issue right. Think for a minute about the potential awkwardness and the hassle of this. Let me describe the scene to you. New Testament worship at the temple. Presumably, it's the Day of Atonement. That's the day where you bring your offering, your gift, your sacrifice to the temple. You're probably waiting in a long line. There's a lot of sinners out there. And they're all coming to give their sacrifices. And they have to Give their offering to the priest. They can't make the sacrifice on their own. The priest would do this for them. So you're waiting in line to give your offering to the priest, and you start some small talk with your neighbor in line. You've maybe done this at the DMV. You've got to talk to somebody, right? Maybe you say something to the effect of, I like your tunic. 
Where'd you get it? And the neighbor in line says, oh, you know, my neighbor made this for me. And then it hits you. You got in a big argument with your neighbor yesterday. You're reminded. He said his property line ended here. You said, no, 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 it ends back there. And then you got in a heated debate. You may have said, you know, I think you've got a raka between your ears. And then you walk away. Both of you lost your temper, and you know he's offended. He's mad at you. Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying. You should get out of line. Leave your offering, your sacrifice somewhere nearby. Walk all the way back to your neighbor's house, which, by the way, could be miles, dozens of miles away from the temple. Apologize. Ask for his forgiveness. Listen and seek to understand his perspective on how you wronged him. After making things right, walk all the way back to find your offering. Hopefully it hasn't been stolen. And you get back in line and you do all of this over again. Say, Jesus, that's such a big deal. Exactly. Jesus said, that's how important it is to me. Because the standing offense between you and that other person is, get this, here's the correlation, it is a standing offense between you and God. The standing offense between you and another person is a standing offense between you and God. You can't separate your life, your worship that way. Oh, I'm cool with God, but I've got all these enemies in my life. No, no, that's not the Christian life. Don't come to worship God living in a disobedience. 1 Samuel 15.22 says, Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. Furthermore, obedience from a sincere heart. David prays in Psalm 51, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That's a, that's a heart that is submitting to God. A heart that is seeking to reconcile those, those that they've offended. Christian, it's important for you to check your heart and check your relationships before you come to offer your gift of worship. It's important to check your heart and check your relationships before coming to sing the songs that we sing on Sunday, to participate in communion, pretend like everything's good. Check your heart and check your relationships if you and your, you and your wife are not right, you and your husband are not right, if you and your children are not right, if there's long-standing issue between you and another brother and sister in the church, if you've left work in a dispute, if issues were never settled between you and that neighbor you used to live to uh, on the East Coast 20 years ago, drop your gift and go, Jesus says. Be reconciled with that person. Make the relationship right before coming to God in worship. And then praise God that we have a cell phone and we can make a phone call rather than walking the dozens of miles that Jesus requires of you to make that relationship right in this passage. Romans 12, 18 says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Obviously, you can't change the other person's heart. You can't make them apologize for the wrongs that they've committed. You can't make them ask for forgiveness, even though you know they've, they are some wrong, there's some wrong on their side too. 
Both of us have offended. But Jesus puts a responsibility on you. You. To go as far as you can. To, make, to go even to great lengths. At a great cost. Even if it's uncomfortable. Even if it's awkward. To confess your sin. To admit your guilt. Even if it's just a little bit. And then to ask for forgiveness for your offense to make the relationship right. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, opens up your heart this morning and asks you, is there an an outstanding offense in, in there? Do you know somebody that you need to make your relationship right with today? Reconcile today. Go today in obedience to God's Word and in obedience to Christ and make that relationship right. Finally, Jesus gives us some great legal advice. This is practical wisdom and spiritual wisdom. Okay, Look at verse 25. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. What is Jesus saying here? Here's the great legal principle. You ready for it? If you're guilty, it's better to settle outside of court. It's better for you. It'll go better for you. If you're guilty, it's better to settle outside of court because generally, outside of court, you can negotiate and reach an agreement for a smaller payment. But if you're condemned as guilty in the court... You better believe the judge, the jury, is going to have you pay the full fine, every penny. That's pretty good legal advice, isn't it? Now, here's how it relates to reconciliation. Think about everything Jesus has just said. When you're guilty of an offense, reconcile quickly with the individual, which is also, remember, reconciling the issue with God, you're making the issue right with God. Can't come to worship without reconciling or doing your best to be at peace with all men. Reconcile quickly so that you don't bear the guilt of that offense before God on judgment day. Because He is going to require full payment from you. Many of us, in disputes with one another, we have a hard time admitting our guilt. Many of us, again, will make excuses, will blame shift We'll justify our actions. We justify our words. Some of us stubbornly and pridefully dig our heels in and we will not give in. We'll not admit we're guilty. We argue that we're innocent. Some even go to the grave without admitting that they were wrong. After death comes what? Judgment. You will stand before the judgment seat of God. Every single one of you. You may be a master of disguise in this life. You may be able to get away with a lot. You may may be able to dig your heels in and convince everybody around you that you're innocent, you're never wrong, but you cannot pretend with God. Remember who you stand in front of. A holy judge who doesn't just see the external evidence. He doesn't need a jury to execute righteous judgment. He doesn't need two or more witnesses. It's you and your maker who sees right through you and sees the motive, sees the thoughts, sees the desires of your heart, 
you stand before God guilty of anger. Don't come to judgment day without reconciling with your brother or sister that you've offended. Reconcile quickly. You're not promised tomorrow. Reconcile before you stand before holy judge, holy God. But if you go before holy God without your issues reconciled, without getting over that bitterness, without surrendering your anger ultimately to Jesus Christ as your advocate, the propitiation for your sins, if you stand before a holy judge without an advocate, then you can be assured that you will not get out until you've paid the very last penny. Jesus puts his stamp on that statement. Don't let that be you. Here's great advice. Settle outside of court. Reconcile quickly. You're not promised tomorrow. You only have today. Don't make it to court. Stand before God in heaven and realize that you're too late. Never say, if you're a professing Christian, I can never forgive that person. If God has forgiven every debt in your life, then you can forgive any debt from others. If God forgave your millions of offenses, then you can forgive the hundreds, even thousands, that you experience. If you confess your sin, if you admit your guilt, He is faithful and just to forgive it. But if you say what you're without sin, the Bible calls you a liar. And you don't have fellowship with God. If you say it is impossible to forgive, if you can't confess your sin, if you can't admit your guilt, then I would seriously consider and reevaluate your relationship with God. Because this is fruit of genuine salvation, reconciliation. If you're angry, plead guilty. And place your trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior, the only advocate, the only propitiation for your sin. The only way for you to be forgiven of your blood guilt, delivered of it. And if you've offended, reconcile quickly. Go to that person immediately so that you can be made right with them and be made right with God when you worship. This is the law of Christ. The law that exposes our heart and gives us instructions on how to walk in obedience to the King Himself. The grace and power to walk in obedience to these commands is found in Jesus Christ. Don't try to do this without Him. Don't try to reconcile with people, deal with the anger within, without Jesus Christ. You won't be able to do it. Rather, bring your sin to Christ before the cross. Confess it, admit you're guilty. Turn from it and trust in Him alone to deliver you from it. And then walk in obedience from the heart to God's commands, just like Christ did. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess my own anger, my blood guiltiness, the anger of the heart, God, that is the root of all kinds of egregious sins. Forgive me of it, God, and I'm thankful for Jesus Christ who washes us white as snow, who cleanses our hearts, who forgives us of our debts 
through his perfect sacrifice, taking the punishment and the penalty for my sin upon himself, even though I plead guilty to it. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who offers everybody in this room that same salvation. I pray for the individuals out there, Lord, listen to this sermon, individuals who have not yet surrendered resentment, who have not yet surrendered their anger, who have not yet confessed it, admitted it, or repented and believed in Jesus Christ for salvation from it. I pray that you would draw them by your Spirit now, you convict them according to their word, and that they, your word, and they would trust in you for salvation and for deliverance. Help those of us who are believers, who even day to day sin, who fall short in the area of anger. I pray that we would confess it quickly, turn from it, repent, trusting in Christ, and walk in obedience to your word. That we would reconcile with those we've offended quickly, whether it be our spouses, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, family. Help us to be a people of reconciliation. Those who display the gospel by going out and forgiving others and, and making relationships right. To give all glory and honor back to the God who reconciled his relationship with us by sending us Jesus Christ. A great act of love. Help us to walk in obedience from the heart. Only you can do that in us. So we trust and we rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen.